0: The Poorly Made Police podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This podcast has explicit content and is meant for a mature audience. The views expressed on this Poorly Made podcast reflect the opinions of the guests and hosts. They do not reflect the opinion of any department or entity. Nothing on this Poorly Made podcast should be construed as legal or marital advice. If something offends you, I kindly invite you to lighten the fuck up. If you want to support this very Poorly Made podcast... relax, and enjoy the orgasmic sound of a Crown Vic. Oh, hey there. Welcome to episode seven of season two of the Very Poorly Made Police Memes podcast. I'm your host, Lenny. I hope you guys are all good and this uh, podcast finds you well, whether that's midnights in your patrol car during sexy time or driving to and from work or wherever the fuck you listen to this. I hope you guys are all having a good day. I got a doozy for you. I have John Mattingly, Sergeant John Mattingly, formerly of the Louisville, I think I said it right, police department out in Kentucky, and his name may sound familiar because he was involved in the Breonna Taylor incident. An incident where narratives were spun and some truths were not told. And there's a lot of false information out there. So John came on the podcast to set the record straight. He's also written a book about it. And I highly suggest you guys all check it out. The book is called 12 Seconds in the Dark, A Police Officer's First Hand Account of the Breonna Taylor Raid. And I'll include the Amazon link to it in the podcast description. Recording this podcast, it was kind of strange. It it kind of put me back in a headspace where I was in 2020, where you could do everything right and you wouldn't be supported. I mean, you could get fucking shot and you wouldn't be supported by your department or the department wouldn't put out the truth because it wasn't convenient. And it, I don't know. It, it's honestly sickening. And what's crazy is a lot of the stuff I thought I knew about that, I didn't know actually what happened. I knew whatever the media was putting out was bullshit, but I didn't fucking know what happened. So I hope this episode is enlightening and gives you an idea of what could happen and what guys go through. Something that came up in the podcast, as John had mentioned, he was doxed and had to move eight times. We got to talking after the podcast and I said, hey, man, did you know about officer privacy? And, and we got to talking about that. John's story kind of goes to show you, you could be shot. You could literally be shot on an incident and they will dox you and they will come after you. That's why officer privacy is so important. That's why, you know, to me, it's, it's more than, yeah, hey, they sponsor my podcast, but I believe in what they're doing. When I go back, I don't want people to be able to find my information. You guys, there's no reason for your information to be online. There's just no reason for it. God forbid you're involved in one of these critical incidents. You don't want to make it any easier for these assholes out there that are going to try and make your life hell. So that's why that's why I support officer privacy. That's why John supports officer privacy. It's important what they're doing. And I'll continue to preach it. I think it's important for you guys to look into that and take back your privacy online. Now, if this is the first time you've ever listened to podcasts, you don't know what officer privacy does, let me tell you. Your personal information is available to anyone with internet connection. This information includes your home address, phone numbers, names of relatives, and more. If you Google your name and the city you live in, you will see dozens of people search sites exposing your private information. This information can be used by stalkers, criminals, and identity thieves. This is dangerous, but you can do something about it. You can remove yourself from these sites and take back your privacy. Finding the sites that have your information and going through the removal process can be time-consuming and frustrating. Each site has their own unique opt-out procedure and many will not delete your information. The first time you ask. And then you got to keep track of it all. Then, after you're removed, you will be re enlisted on the websites and the cycle starts all over again. OfficerPrivacy.com can help. OfficerPrivacy.com has two ways to help you take your privacy back. Do it yourself. They've created a custom, easy to use software so you can quickly navigate through the top 30 people search sites and delete your information. They have instructions for each and every site and they include a simple way to keep track of it all. They provide access to their software free for 14 days. This is plenty of time to go through the sites and remove your information. Or sign up for their premium service. You sign up, and OfficerPrivacy.com staff of current and former U.S.-based law enforcement officers will remove you from the top 30 people search sites. Then they monitor those sites. If you show up, they'll remove you again. Now, I know a lot of my audience is law enforcement-based, but while OfficerPrivacy.com's primary focus is to help the law enforcement officers stay private, you don't have to be a law enforcement officer to use their services. Again, check out OfficerPrivacy.com. All right, well, without any further ado, let me play you a little bit of music and then we'll get into my interview with John Mattingly. And the band we got up this week with a law enforcement member is Enceladus. Guys out of Florida, and this is their tune, Omega. And we'll be right back with the podcast.
1: The assembly line rumors surfaced that the military was test flying recovered alien craft (sighs) at a secret government base known as Area 51.
0: All right, now the moment you've all been waiting for. I have, I don't, need, I think I feel like I need to call you Sarge, um, even though I never worked for you. But I, I have John <laughs> Mattingly here with me, who yeah, apparently John's is, perfectly fine. Okay, so John, you are not actually related to Don Mattingly, which was kind of a disappointment.
1: Yeah, I wish I were. You know, I would have loved to have gone to some Yankee games and sat behind the bench, but that, that never came true. Who's the baseball team in
0: Kentucky, though? Who we do you guys root a, for? We
1: we have no pro teams in Kentucky. Everything is college. Um, we do have a A team. Uh, That's affiliated with the Reds, but they're kind of, you know, it's triple A ball. It's fun if you want to just go hang out with some friends and people drinking, whatever, but it's not not anything you would root for.
0: It it doesn't make sense to me that Kentucky is the home of the Louisville Slugger, but there's not an actual baseball team. It it drives me insane. But do you guys have like a rooting interest for like a, a major league team or no?
1: No, man, it's it's all over the place because, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people. Ohio is the main one, whether it be the the Bray or the uh, the whatever the other one is up there that you've got the Reds and um, the Indians. Well, they're and,
0: whoa, 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 whoa. You can't call them that now. <laughs> I don't know what they're called now. Um, I don't either. I changed the name. I don't I don't remember what it's called now. The Guardians. They're the the Cleveland oh. Guardians now. So, well, that's your first moment being canceled on my podcast.
1: Good. I like being canceled. It's kind of a theme of mine. I'm, I'm pretty good at it.
0: Apparently, man. So if if you don't know and you're listening to podcasts, you don't know who John is. John was involved in the Brianna Taylor incident. Uh well, that was early 2020, right?
1: Yeah, March 13th, 2020. Okay, it was a Friday and it was a full moon. So everything was should have gone right.
0: Oh, I didn't even realize it was Friday the 13th when that happened, yeah. to y'all. It and we'll get into all of that stuff, but I feel like John kind of gets hammered with the questions about everything regarding that, but I want to know who the real John is. And a guy in his basement making a podcast is the one to tell you. So tell the millions of people out there a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah. So I'll start when I was younger. Um, I grew up, my dad was a pastor. We grew up in the, in the, what's called the West end of Louisville, the the high crime, um, very poverty ridden area of town. Uh, he came here from, he's born in Louisville and raised here, but then he worked for IBM. And he he and my mom before, this is before I was born, uh, they went to Nashville. That's where he was working. And then he got into a church down there. He hadn't really gone to church. He or my mom their whole life. And uh, they got into that and he felt like he was called to be in the ministry. And he sw- he left IBM, which was a good paying job as an up and coming business. Uh, this was before right as right on the edge of computers. So he was right on the cusp of uh, you know, something great there. And he just felt that wasn't for him. So he went into the ministry and, and they found a small church here in Louisville that had, um, maybe 50, 60 people in it in a end of town where, where white flight was taking place. All the white people were moving out because uh, it was a black area. And, but he said, man, this is where God wants me. We went there. Um, I was born, he came here in 72. I was born in 73 and, That's all I knew my whole life, you know, was, was multicultural environments with people that were poor. Um, I didn't even move out of that area until I was 30 years old and been on the police department for three years. So I played basketball at the parks with black, white thugs, non-thugs, you know, you name it. I was, I was enriched in the culture. And so that gave me a huge advantage being a police officer. I feel like, because I see so many guys that, you know, grow up in a nice into town, go to private school. Um, go to college, get their degree, get on the police department at 22 and have no real life experience. And they're thrown in the middle of it. And it's a total culture shock. And uh, fortunately, I didn't have that. But same time, I didn't have any money either growing up. So it was kind of a trade-off. Uh, I kind of would like the money part of it, but that didn't happen. That, that's the kind of environment that, that set the tone for me. And I was able to see all the things going on around me, as far as the drug dealing, uh, the violence. And I thought, Man, these people that either are too scared to take care of themselves or they or they just physically can't, it would make me mad. I remember as a teenager, I get ticked off seeing all this stuff go on and I would see the police get involved and I I would think, man, that's what I want to do. I want to be one of them. I want to make a difference. And, you know, you hear that all the time and it's kind of a cliche. Oh, why'd you go to the police department to make a difference? Well, we all did that, but at the same time, it looked fun. It looked cool. You got to fight people. You got to chase people. You got to carry a gun. You know, you got to do all the cool stuff too. So I'd be lying if I didn't say that part intrigued me as well. And so I didn't get on the police department though until I was 27 because I got married right out of high school when I was 19. I had three kids by the time I was 26.
0: What do you you think about starting a little bit later? Because I I was kind of in the same boat. I I wanted to be cop. My dad was a cop and that was what I wanted to do, but I I actually didn't start until I was 27 too. Do you think that was better for you? Do you think you were more prepared to be a cop at that age?
1: Oh, it was a huge advantage. I think maturity wise, um, you're able to just handle situations better. You're not quite as emotional going into things because you've, you've, like I said before, you've lived some life. I had kids at this point. So, um, and you're able to maybe empathize with people a little more because I, I see guys who don't have children or. Um, who haven't been in that environment and, and they would come in and they'd just be so harsh on people the way they talk to them. And I'd sit back thinking, man, what if that were my kid? You know, what if what if I were? Because I, I grew up in in that environment of of not having anything. And so I know some of the reasons that people do things doesn't make it right, but I understand why a mom who's struggling with a kid would shoplift. I get it. And uh, and some, some of those guys did. And I think coming in later, I think it's a huge, Advantage. I think if you can't drink to your 21, you can't carry a gun to your 21. Why suddenly would you put someone in such authority and such a powerful position to take away people's rights and potentially their life um, when they haven't even been able to do any of this stuff themselves. So I think, uh, you know, I understand why they're trying to get younger guys, because it is a young guys game uh, as far as on the street, but, but at the same time, man, the maturity level is huge.
0: You've obviously been on for a minute. Do you think the modern police officer has changed quite a bit from, because how long did you have on?
1: 21 years.
0: Okay. So from the 21 years you were on, the job has changed a ton. Oh
1: yeah.
0: Have you seen good changes? I mean, I think obviously we can all kind of focus on all the bad stuff that's happened the last couple of years, but has anything good changed in the 21 years you were on?
1: I think the thing that's, that's changed for the positive is I think, 21st century policing is the most professional it's ever been. Um, I don't know if that's just due to body cams and cell phones and accountability. Um, And I'm not saying cops are bad, but at the same time, if you do have somebody who has bad intentions or has that inside them, if there's not somebody watching you, if there's not that that safeguard, so to speak, then those people are more likely to cross the line um, when that's not there. So I think overall uh, policing is better. I think it's the best it's ever been, the least corrupt, but it's not, we're not, we're not out of the clear either. There's still plenty of guys who do things they shouldn't do. And, but at the same time, that's a very, very small percentage. And unfortunately what's changed for the negative, I feel like is when I came on, at least your upper command, maybe not your chief, but even, even the chief was better than they are now, but your upper command, especially, man, they would go to bat for you. Um, even if you screwed up, as long as you told them the truth about it, they did what they could to mitigate the circumstance. And nowadays, anytime any of these guys do anything, they're automatically assumed guilty by their own department. They're thrown under the bus. Um, everybody's scared to put their neck out for anybody. And that just blows my mind. And I'm not talking about again with, you know, everybody, everybody equates police to being in this, Oh, they're the biggest gang in America. And, the, the FOPs or the, they run cities. And I'm thinking, well, they don't know what they're talking about. Number one, cause like in my instance, and I appreciate our <laughs> that, FOP.
0: That cracks me up <laughs> by the way, the FOP. No offense. Uh, yeah. The FOP is a mess in a lot of places.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I like my, I like the guys in our FOP, but in my situation, they were useless. And that's not a slam on them, but they don't have the authority that people think they have. They're simply a union that bargains for your contract. They, other than that, they have very little pull. And uh, everybody thinks they're this powerhouse of mobsters and, you know, and sometimes I wish that was the case because it would it would have made my life a lot easier over the last two years. But but that's not the case. And so everybody has this misconception of, of police and police departments. That's that's just not true.
0: Now, I, I don't want to jump around too much, but since we're on the command stuff, I think I, I really when I first kind of knew who you were more than just kind of the initial stuff that happened was the email. And that email, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of cops saw that email and were, holy shit, we'd want to work for this guy. Because as a sergeant, you stuck your neck out. And I'll give a little bit of context is basically before the grand jury was going to come out with the whatever findings they were going to have. You sent a department wide email and basically laid it out like, hey, guys, sorry, you guys are in this position. I'm sorry that the department isn't taking care of you guys. I'm sorry you guys have to deal with people spitting on you and throwing bricks at you. And I, I got to tell you, man, it for a guy that was on a bad department, that was honestly inspirational to hear somebody in some position of authority on the department to actually come out and say, like, hey, this is bullshit. Yeah,
1: and that that was the whole purpose of that email. You know, again, this book isn't about me That email wasn't about me. This is me. My whole career has been spent taking care of those around me. And because if you get guys around you who are good, number one, and you trust them and let them do their job, you look like a superstar and you don't really have to do anything, but kind of corral them around and make sure they don't, they don't screw things up. But the same, then you also have to have their back though. And there's so many guys that don't. So the the whole emphasis of that email was to let these guys know, Hey, the FBI is not your friend our chief is not your friend, our city, not our city as in the people, but as in leadership, they are not going to have your back. You got to take care of each other. You got to take care of yourself. You know, don't, don't fall for the tricks that they're going to try to entice you to do things that they're going to get you hemmed up. And, you know, it didn't go over well with uh, the leadership, but I'm glad the guys appreciated it. And that's who it was for. Anyway, the the leadership can screw off,
0: you know, for such a forgiving society, boy, if a cop does anything anything it's all it's almost criminal which is is mind-blowing to me look cops are human beings they're going to make mistakes and i'm not talking about grandiose criminal actions i mean i'm sure you've seen it and and i'm going to pronounce louisville wrong every single time (laughs) i I apologize it 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 came up before I, i can't say it but you have these situations where something as stupid as your mailbox if you if you didn't clean out your mailbox when you were supposed to The way people you know, command, talks to officers about stupid, silly shit like that is mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. Now, you're on the street and you have this sometimes life or death position. You have to make these very hard judgment calls. You're going to make a mistake. It's going to happen. And if people think the cops are going to go out there and be perfect 100% of the time, I got some bad news for you. It's not going to happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They'll never be pleased. If, if you think with dealing with fallible human beings that for some reason, putting on this badge is going to make them uh, go into some kind of game, perfect mode that doesn't exist. And, you know, emotions are involved in what we do and and you try to train where those emotions are pushed down or at least guided in the right direction. But sometimes they come out and that's part of being human. And for the fact that people can't, put themselves in that situation. I, th- I think that's why it's vital, especially for city leaders and your community outspoken people. I think it's vital that they do ride along. So I'm not talking about just one or two, I'm talking about two or three weeks in a, in a crime ridden area, seeing what the police see, feeling what they feel, smelling what they smell, tasting what they taste, all the things that go into uh, the surroundings you're in, because I don't care who you are. when, especially in our town in, in the West end of Louisville at night, when you go down there, when the dark, when the lights go out, buddy, it's like a third world country. And what you rode through two hours earlier compared to what you're riding through at night, it's, it's a different ball game. The gunshots are going off. People are screaming. Um, I mean, it's just, it's a different environment and unless you felt it, unless you've been there and all of your senses have taken this in, it's hard to imagine, you know, people watch TV and get in movies and they get this totally wrong mindset of what police do. And, um, I think, I think that's important for anybody, but especially our leaders to, to buckle up and, and go, go get a feel for it.
0: We were talking a little bit earlier about the changes in law enforcement and, and I'm a guy that, you know, obviously I'm not on the job anymore, but I, I was getting to that point in my career. where I'm like, ah, oh, these fucking new guys, but <laughs> I, I feel bad for them because oh. you can't make a mistake. Like when I started, you know, almost 10 years ago now, you couldn't, you can make a mistake. You know, you're going to get a hard time. Your sergeant's going to be up your ass, but you could make a mistake. They'd work through it with you and it wouldn't happen again.
1: Rookies don't get that anymore. No, there's no benefit of the doubt. Like I talked earlier, it used to be when I came on, I remember, you know, I came on in 2000 and back then, uh, when, when cops got on the department, And I don't know how it is where you're at, but when cops got on the apartment back then, they would stay on 40 years, 45 years. I don't know how long your dad did. Everybody's different, but majority of the guys, man, they were lifers. And I would remember coming in and training and I had a day work phase and I walked in and there's all these old crusty dudes sitting around the the roll call table complaining, looking at me like, who's this young cat? You know, they all got the big mustaches and uh, they're (laughs) seasoned. You know what I'm saying? They've been around the block. They've seen a lot. They've done a lot. And even to get on day work, when I came on, you had to have at least 20 years on, or you weren't getting there. And then now, I mean, they're, they're putting brand new guys on day work because they can't fill the bodies. They can't put them in. But as far as the change goes, those guys would sit there and complain and go, Oh, Rook, man, you don't know what it's like when we came on. I feel bad for you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't start now. There's no way. And I was like, Oh, you get out of here, man. I love this job. I mean, we go run and gun and, and I w I didn't want to go home at the end of my shift. And, And by the time I left, I remember thinking, oh, these poor guys coming on. They don't know what it was like. And so maybe it's different. Maybe when you first come on, it's all new to you and all exciting and they don't know any different. So it's okay. But man, once you've been on and there that much change takes place in a short period of time, you look at it and go, like you said, I I feel for you because like what I was going to say a minute ago is used to be when complaints came in, they would come to your division. Your sergeant would answer it half the time he would cuss the people out and that'd be the end of it. <laughs> I mean, those complaints didn't go anywhere 90% of the time. And can now they, and
0: just for clarification, they were all bullshit and they can oh, most of them. Be yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, just like they are now. That's one thing body cams have done. You know, the, the, the guys on the other side thought, aha, we're going to catch these cops and all these aha moments and, and we got you. But instead 95% of the time now those people look like idiots And, and, and people realize, oh, it was a false complaint. The sergeants would handle it then, but now you can get online in Louisville. I don't know about where you're at, but they can, you can get online and anonymously complain on a police officer without swearing an affidavit, like you used to have to, and they will actually open a case on you and investigate it. And so that's the point we're at where cops are automatically the guilty. There's no reasonable doubt. There's no, um, let's give this time to play out or let's investigate it. It's simply, oh you're on suspension until we figure this out <clears throat> and until that changes. You're going to keep losing good cops.
0: I got to be honest and, and I can't speak for everywhere, but I can't imagine any city with over a hundred thousand people is worth working at, at this point. I could be wrong. Maybe there's a few places here and there, but I, why would you, why? Cause yeah. you're the scapegoat everywhere.
1: It's a risk. I mean, the risk of the job used to be physical harm. And I think, while wow, that's still there now you're talking about your freedom you're talking about your reputation, your livelihood, your house. And, and they used to say, be careful what you do because do you like your house you live in. Cause if you get sued, you know, if you do something stupid, you're going to lose all that. Well, that wasn't really true because I've never seen anybody really lose their house because you know, the, the city covers lawsuits. And as long as you did something within the law and did it with uh, the right intent, then, then the city was required to cover it. But now it's different because while you may not get sued and lose your stuff. The way you get docks, the way the department distances from you or suspend you. Now people are, they are losing their houses, but because they can't afford to live in them. Now they're having to sell them and, and move. Like we, we moved six times in a year because of this thing. We had to sell a house. We had just bought, uh, took a loss on it, moved to two hours away from Louisville because of all this. So even though you're innocent, even though you didn't do anything wrong, there's still ramifications now that just used to not be part of the game.
0: Would you do it all over again? Work in Louisville or, I'm sorry, I I will get it right at some point. Louisville, Louisville. I can do it. Louisville, (laughs) I believe in myself. Would you do it all over again or would you maybe work somewhere else?
1: No, I I loved where I worked. Um, I mean, you know, we've got about a million people in Louisville. And so there were so many things to do because I remember somebody in our academy came in and said, hey, every three to five years, find a different position on your department. You're big enough. You can do it here and that'll keep you from getting burned out. So I did that. And that was the best thing I did, because every time I was starting to get to a point, I was like, I don't know, man, this is kind of this is, you know, not as fun as it used to be. I'd switch it up, do something else, and it'd be like starting over again. And, you know, you're with a whole new group of driven guys with the same mindset. So I'll probably do it again. I I wouldn't start right now. But if you're talking about what I go back to 2000, do it again. Yeah, I would.
0: All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to the podcast. I want to talk to you about my buddy, Brad Williams, over at Police Fit. You guys see him on the page every single Monday on Poorly Made Police Memes. Brad's going to help the new applicants and active officers smash their fitness and regain their health. Brad has 11 years experience in the fitness industry, 17 years in the military, and is also a first responder. He's going to share his experience and expertise to help applicants get their dream job and help active first responders regain their health. That's Police Fit, and I'll have a link for you on the podcast description. Back to the podcast. Now you you mentioned you kind of I went bounced around is the wrong way to say it but you went and did a couple different assignments. What kind of assignments did you do besides patrol?
1: Yeah, so I I'll, I'll give you the rundown of my my career so I started in 2000. Uh, I was on late watch until 2005 and then I went to what's called a flex platoon and what those are we have eight divisions and and each division has a a flex platoon, it's kind of like an impact platoon. It's probably 90% uh, narcotics related. Cause that's what I always wanted to do. Search warrants, buys, all that stuff. So, um, and then it's, but they call it flex because it was flexible for whatever the major of that, of that, uh, division wanted. If you had a lot of car break-ins, they'd, they'd stick you a detail on that. If you had robberies and so forth, but mostly you would handle the complaints of the division, which are narcotics. So I did that until 2009. Um, I didn't want to get promoted. I didn't even want to take the test and the sergeant, my sergeant at the time came to me and said, Hey, are you taking the test? I'm like, no, I, I could care less. And she said, well, you you've, you're seeing who they're promoting around here. Aren't you? And I'm like, well, yeah, a bunch of idiots. She said, okay, well, do you want to work for them? Or do you want to work with them? And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. So, um, I took the test. I uh, got promoted in 2009. Uh, the actual swearing date was, uh, September 11th, 2009. And I went back to late watch for about a year. Um, at that point, my body was going, man, you can't do this again. I'm getting older, and I'd been away from it for a few years. So I went to our district detective's office, and I did that for about a year and a half. And while it was a good experience, um, suit and tie and, and paperwork just didn't really for me. So I was like, uh, I'm going to find something else to do. I went back to the flex division in our flex platoon in that division for about six months. And then the crime in Louisville started really climbing. This was 2012 we started just seeing an increase in violence and it was a younger generation. It wasn't the OGs. It was just the younger kids starting to come up. And that's when we really started seeing a flip in the way things happen. And that was right in the Obama years where um, things just kind of started spiraling. And um, so we, our department started a, a brand new unit. It was called Viper. It was a violent crime unit that went after shooters, murders, business, robbers, carjackers, you know, the worst of the worst in the city was going to be assigned to this unit. So I was like, yeah, I could do that. That sounds like fun. So I went to it in 2012. I did that until 2000, late 2015. And we had a regime change at the top and the, the the people that came in and took over wanted to recreate the will. I mean, this unit is the hardest I've ever worked on the police department, but it was the most fun I'd ever had. And I had some good times, man. I've got a lot of stories, a lot of good things we did, but, um, we just rocked and rolled every single day. I mean, it was just, it was nonstop busy, but it was awesome. And we got a ton of guns, ton of, ton of murders, ton of all the good stuff that you'd want to do as a cop. It was like a cop's episode every night. That stuff doesn't
0: happen though. <laughs> I, I i don't think that happens in any big city in the, the country. No, I think you're no, making it just, up.
1: They're just misunderstood people. That's
0: all it is. Obviously.
1: So I did that until 2000, the end of 2015. And when that new regime came in and tried to change things up. Uh, they got really weird, man. They were telling us when we could eat lunch, what side of the streets we could patrol or we could stop people on. I was like, you know what? I'm out of here instead of fighting with you. I'll just go back to the beat. Well, I was going to go back to the beat, but then, uh, uh, somebody I'd come up with was a Lieutenant in, in another division. And it was the busiest division in the city. And she was like, Hey, we need a flex Sergeant. Can you come back here and do flex again? I'm like, sure. I'll give it a shot. So I went there. We were only there about a year. Um, and then in 2016, Um, our department shut down the flex units. And so I put in for our uh, narcotics unit, the major narcotics unit, which is where I always wanted to go anyway. And this was 16 years into my career. And I finally got there as a Sergeant. And um, I did street platoon for a couple of years. And then I bumped up to major case unit, which dealt with FBI and DEA, had several of those agents and wiretaps and all the fun stuff. Well, then about... um, probably early 2019 mid 2019 there was going to be an opening come in our interdiction unit it had the highway interdiction and the parcel interdiction and I thought you know I talked to my wife and said I'm probably four or five years away from retiring and I have been going balls to the wall from from get-go I mean there's been no slowdown and I've seen guys who go 100 miles an hour and then retire and they're like they're lost you know they're like what do I do now And I said, I don't want to do that. I want to kind of start tapering off. So when it's time to leave, I know it's time to leave. And so I went to that unit in September of nineteen, and uh, that's when let's see, March six months later is when the Breon Taylor incident happened. So I had a great time in that unit, and I'll tell you what, people don't, most people don't know this that aren't involved in law enforcement, and I really didn't know until I was uh, further down the road. But the the UPS, FedEx, DHL. Uh, U.S. Postal Service, they are the largest traffickers of narcotics in the country. There are so much dope that moved through those systems. It's unreal. We would go out to UPS. Our quick story back, we would go to UPS once a week. And UPS would flip out if I told this because they didn't want their name on any paperwork. <laughs> um, but we would go to UPS one time a week. And, and the hub for UPS, the, the national hub is in Louisville. So 3 million packages a day come through Louisville. They get unloaded, moved around say, if you're in San Diego and you're shipping a package to San Francisco and it's on flight, if it's on air, it comes to Louisville first and then goes back out. So it's really bizarre how they have it set up, but 3 million packages a day. One time a week, we would go out there and pull 20, 25 boxes and we would fill a six or eight foot table up almost to the ceiling with dope out of 20 packages. And that's 20 out of 3 million a day. I mean, it was unreal how much comes through there. And so I did that for six months and then, you know, Brown Taylor incident happened and my life was kind of shut
0: down. To say the least, man, And it, it, to be honest with you, I, I feel kind of awkward asking you about it because it's such no. a, like a high profile type thing. And I I wanted to point out something and you call me out on if I'm wrong, but I feel like the fact that you were shot during that incident is completely overlooked, completely overlooked. Like I've never heard anybody ask like, Hey, how did he, you know, how is he recovering? How did he, you know, how did he get through that mentally? Cause that's a, that's a big fucking deal to get shot. Is that something, you know, did anybody even ask or take care of you?
1: No, no, not even our department, which is a sad thing. Um, and that sounds crazy. I know, but it's once politics kicked in, it was over. Um, yeah. For instance, like Oprah on her big thing she put out, cause she put out 26 billboards around town. Uh, you know, she let Brianna on the cover of her magazine, which she had never done with anybody in the past. Um, but in her big statement, when she put out to do those billboards, she said, um, after a confrontation with Brianna Taylor's boyfriend, police shot and and murdered Brianna Taylor. I'm thinking confrontation, you call me getting shot first, a confrontation. So none of that's ever brought up. Uh, I remember the local, one of the local stations here said, Oh, he got a graze wound to the leg and then they killed Brianna Taylor. I'm thinking, well, it ripped through my femoral artery and I had a five-hour surgery, but I guess that's a graze wound if that's what you want to call it. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of frustration with that, especially on, on the national media level and social media. Nobody ever mentions that. And again, it's not about me, but if you're going to talk about me, at least include the facts, because if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But but if you're not including all the facts, then, then you can't even tell the story right.
0: Yeah. I feel like it's been said a million times, but it's true. Facts, facts don't matter anymore the narrative matters what whatever actually happened doesn't matter and that's kind of your thing right now is you're going out and basically speaking the truth so that information's actually out there and so people actually know what happened because you know me as a layperson a thousand miles away you go and open up the newspaper about what happened in Kentucky and I I don't know what happened because it changed daily the information changed and then you go to another source and What actually happened? Nobody knows because and I think as a cop, any cop that's listening can you can read through it or you can read the news and say, oh, that's bullshit. And I kind of compare, it. you know, cops, if we write anything, it's fact. It has to be a fact. If we arrest somebody, we have to do a sworn affidavit. What does a newspaper have? An editor? Do you think they actually read and fact check everything that's in there?
1: No, no, they don't want to because it's not as as you know, salacious and it's not as didn't grab the attention that the, that lies do. So I think, you know, you talk about the media and what people know, and I'll tell you what, Lenny, I've been traveling around uh, speaking at different conferences to police officers and you would be amazed at how many, probably 90% of them come up and go, wow, I had no idea. I thought this, I thought that because here was the major problem in this, in this entire case And it goes back to our leadership. So for two years, this false narrative has been out there that, that the attorneys began with and Ben Crump was one of the main ones and he's a piece of crap, uh, bumbling fool, but, you know, made his millions off grifting off dead black people. But they, the media went with what the attorney said, took it as gold and put it out. You know, she was asleep in bed. She, they had the wrong apartment. Um, The boyfriend they were looking for was already in custody. They didn't find any dope. All this stuff that wasn't true. And not one time, not even to this date, has our department or our city come out and said, you know, those were those facts were wrong. Here's the truth, because it's all documented, but they they refuse to put it out. So I can understand why somebody saying Colorado is, you know, following the case and all they hear constantly are all these lies. And nobody ever bucks against them and goes, hold on now. It's not true because we had a gag order on us for almost a year. I couldn't say a thing. And you talking about one to explode, man, I'm sitting back, listening to this stuff. I'm ready to kill somebody like for real, kill somebody. And so we had to sit here and take this. And people automatically saying, well, if they're not fighting back or if the department's not refuting what they're saying, or the city's going along with it and giving them 12 million bucks before any trial, civil trial or or a criminal trial takes place, they must be guilty. And I would probably think the same thing had I not gone through something like this now. But now I can't even watch like ID Channel or 2020 and go, oh, it was a good one. Because the whole time I'm thinking, well, what part of that's true? Because I think they've made four, maybe five documentaries about the Breonna Taylor case and not one of them are right. They didn't ask our opinion or our side on any of them. And we're talking about major, we're talking about Netflix, Hulu, uh, 2020, um, one called NBA players put it out, and I'm sitting here thinking, how many of these other cases are like this? That you get just one side of it, but you don't know because nobody has a platform to to refute this stuff, and uh, so that's a major flaw right now that's going around, especially with departments and these cowards that are running them that won't stand up for the truth and won't put it out. So I can understand why people would think what they thought because nobody refuted it.
0: We're in this liability filled world and and nobody thinks with their fucking brain anymore. Uh, Look, I, I get it. Cities want to save money. You know, they want to settle so it doesn't go to trial and it could cost way more. I, I get the premise of it, but I'm just telling everybody, if you see something in the news and it says the lawsuit alleges half of what's in there is total and complete fucking bullshit because they bring that to the news media and say, "Hey, look what we're saying against whatever police department." The news media, because it sounds sexy, they're going to put all of that out there. all these allegations that are baseless allegations are out there. And guess what? That's what gets reported. You don't hear what happens two years later when it settled. What actually happened?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a definite cancer that's going on um, within society, and I think more importantly the money, because we see the government's not afraid to waste money on a bunch of crap that's useless and, and irrelevant. I think they could save a ton of money in the future by fighting some of these frivolous lawsuits now, because if once you start the, the agenda of settling because it's quote cheaper, then where does it end? And it just keeps compounding and compounding and it's costing the taxpayers a ton more money. And especially once the taxpayers find out the truth Like in ours, they settled for $12 million, 12 million bucks. And it was on a Sunday night. Nobody knew it was happening. And our city is supposed to get anything over a million dollar settlement supposed to go through our city council. None of our city council was aware it was happening. Um, It was a, it was a closed door meeting with just the mayor, our county attorney and her lawyers. Um, They did it. Nobody knew about it. It was in the paper the next day and everybody was caught off guard. We're like, are you kidding me? I mean, this is like two months after the event and the facts haven't even been put out yet. Why are you doing this? Because it obviously didn't, it didn't calm the scene of, of all the violence and all the destruction that took place after, after fact.
0: Well, I, I guess we're at a point now set the record straight. What actually happened?
1: Okay. So when we got there that night, um, went up to the door, originally this thing was signed as a no knock. And that, that's another contingent part of this that people go, Oh, you know, get rid of no knock warrants. And, and, you know, even Rand Paul, who is a conservative out of Kentucky, who now he's more of a libertarian. So I can understand why he would want to get rid of no-knock warrants, because I think he thinks police are a um, necessary evil anyway. But um, when he, he proposed a law to pass called Justice for Breonna Taylor Law, and I'm sitting back thinking, whoa, 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 justice? What's justice? You know? you got to, you got to explain this more instead of using this as a little platform for your, your political agenda. Why don't you tell the truth here or bring me on, ask me. I even reached out to him and we were supposed to have a meeting with him and that got canceled. All the, you know, reached out to Mitch McConnell's office. I talked to them. They were like, oh, we can't get involved with, you know, criminal stuff that we're not allowed to do that, but we wish you luck. Good luck. Um, so the politicians are a joke. Number one, um, But we went there and it was supposed to be a no knock. But before we went, they had a tracker on the car and a ping on on his phone on Jamarcus Glover, which was her ex-boyfriend that she was holding money for, getting packages for. And they have all this on video. And uh, they have photos of him going there with no package coming out with. They have a video of her driving him down to the trap house to drop stuff off. So she was involved in it. She's not this innocent little award-winning EMT that everybody kept saying. Um, So we go to the house. They said, since he's not going to be there, this no longer fits the elements of a no knock warrant. So, knock and announce. She's a heavy set female. Give her time to come to the door. Cool. No problem. We'll do that. Now, when we got there, a couple of little things had taken place. A vehicle had pulled up that nobody saw pull up. Uh, the eye that was watching missed it or didn't think it was involved, but it was parked right in front of the apartment. So, my senses went up and I'm thinking, man, who's in here? You know, did somebody come that we don't know? Because it was only supposed to be Brianna in the apartment. So I was comfortable with giving it more time when I knew that. But when we got there and I saw the other vehicle there, I thought, "Uh, I don't know if I like this plan, but I'll do what I was asked to do. So we go up and we knock on the door, bang, start yelling, "Police search warrant. About that time, a neighbor from upstairs comes out because we're making so much noise. and He's like, starts arguing with one of the detectives downstairs. They command him to go back in his apartment after a couple, couple minutes or a couple seconds, he goes back in. He comes out and he's, he's arguing that he finally goes back in. So I continue banging on the door. I'm the one knocking at the door on the contact. Uh, I'm yelling police search warrant, come to the door, bang, 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 bang. I mean, it, it, you know, police knocks, they're not soft. Everybody knows what a police knock is. You got an open hand banging on this door. The neighborhood knows what a police knock is. And after about 45 seconds to a minute, the guy who's on the right side of the door, who's going to be ram, he says, hold on. I think I hear something. So I stop and I yell again, police come to the door. We got a search warrant, come to the door. We paused. We didn't hear anything. I knocked one more time and yelled. <clears throat> I looked at my lieutenant. He gave me the nod. I told the guy that that's using the breaching tool to go ahead and hit it. Um, he starts hitting it on the third hit. It, the door comes open. I'm on the left-hand side of the door. The door swings from right to left. I can see the living room to my right. So nobody's in the doorway at this point. I can see the living room to the right. I slice the pie, go as far as I can see. And as soon as I step into the door frame to clear down the hall and to the left end of the kitchen, I see two figures at the end of this hall. This hall is a narrow hall. It's about 25, 30 feet down. It's dark. There's a little bit of ambient light coming from the TV in the room. We've got our weapon mounted lights. But as soon as I, I scan from right to left, I come across them. And this is not typical in any search warrant I've ever done. So I've, I've made entry in over probably 2,000 plus search warrants over my career. And generally, you have people giving up, people hiding, people trying to escape, but never have I ran across two people at the end of a hall, shoulder to shoulder, they're, they're, they're over, overlapping, matter of fact, because she was a bigger girl, and this was a narrow hall. And I see one tall head, one short head, and my mind in these milliseconds is going, uh-oh, something's not right. And as I'm scanning, I get to the first figure, and I see the gun pushed out. And about the time I register gun, uh, he shoots. I fill up my leg. I return four, four shots. I knew I had to get offline, so I took a step to the left and got behind the door frame, and came back around and put two more into the bedroom door frame where he had dove into. The problem with this is that once that coward dove into the door, dove into a room, he left Brianna in the hallway. Well, she tried to follow him into that room, so she caught these cross these bullets that were going down, intended for Kenneth Walker. She's down. He's in the room. I knew I'd been hit. Uh, Miles had stepped up while I went down and was. And was laying down fire down the hallway so I could get out from behind him. Um, I grabbed my leg and, you know, I'd had a ton of CPR and first aid training over 20 years. So I knew this wasn't just a through and through because it was a ton of blood in my hand. And I even yelled at the doorway when I went down. So I've been shot. I think it hit my femoral. And so I scooted out. I got up, hobbled, uh, went in between two cars. Uh, About that time, my lieutenant's there. He grabs my vest, pulls me on out. And I'm going, Hey, I need a tourniquet. Get me a tourniquet. And so they finally find a tourniquet. We get it on my leg. Uh, and I'll tell you what, I will take getting shot 10 times over having a tourniquet cranked on your leg again. That thing is, is no fun. It's no joke. So I'm laying there, they're working on this. And I hear all the commotion around me. Um, I'm still clear headed at this point, And I'm still giving commands to people. Hey, go do this have EMS go here. I tried to get on my radio at one point and I'm, I'm getting cut out by other traffic. Um, so we finally get down to the hospital. Uh, we go in and this is a crazy part of it because just the way your mind works on all this. Number one, I'd already had a couple of rounds of fentanyl put in me at this point, but I'm still coherent and I'm coherent enough to know that when I go into University of Louisville hospital, it's a training hospital in town, but it's our trauma care center. So if you can make it to the hospital, most of the time, you're going to be pretty good. And I knew I was okay anyway, at this point, because we had the tourniquet on, I just didn't want to lose my leg. But when we roll into this, to the ER, there's like 30 people in a semicircle around my bed because it's all these students. Well, most these students are between 20 and 26 year old females. And I'm looking down and they're cutting my pants off and I'm thinking, oh crap, that's the first thing in my head. I'm like, Man, I'm going to be laying here all wide open in front of all these people. So I'm like, hey, Doc, can I fluff this up real quick? Well, that lightened the mood in the room a little bit. So, but then when they, they you know, they went in, they did a surgery that repaired the artery, uh, took a vein out of my leg to repair it. And, and I thought, you know, I thought things were going to be pretty good because COVID, uh, March 13th, is the actual day that COVID nationwide shut everything down. You know, the president was on TV every day, our mayor was on TV, the governor. So this thing kind of got pushed aside for a couple months. But then in April, you had a Mod Aubrey that happened, that situation. And Ben Crump got on that case. Well, Lanita Baker, who's one of the attorneys that was on Breonna Taylor's case, had done a case with him previously when she was in her internship. So she knew him. So once Ahmaud Aubrey happened, she reached out to him and said, hey, we've got this case in Louisville. Uh, this black female was killed by the white cops and it's been overlooked by the media. Can you help us? So Ben Crump and his, you know, just trying to do the right thing, jumps on board and with his white cape comes to town and starts stirring things up. Well, then the trifecta happened. That's when George Floyd happened. And um, that was at the end of May, and everything just exploded from there. So we went from thinking, well, maybe we skated past this one as far as media scrutiny to right in the pits of it. And uh, it was no fun.
0: All right, let's take a quick second to hear from the fine people over at Refuge Medical. Refuge Medical, made in America, guaranteed forever. They've got individual first aid kits, multi-casualty first aid kits, vehicle first aid kits, basic first aid kits. They got all the components you need and they have training. These guys have 33 confirmed life saved, including two dozen officers in the last two years. They use North American rescue components. They've been deployed on four continents with all the branches of the U.S. military. They exceed what your department is issuing. And it's designed to work with the Marchie algorithm to Find all this great stuff over at www.refugemedical.com. Use promo code PMPM for free shipping on all orders. Go check these guys out. Now back to the show. Looking back on how all of that went, is there anything you think you could have done differently? Yeah, I think I
1: think when when I got there and saw that vehicle out front and I thought to myself, maybe she's not alone in this department. While we may not have still served it as a no-knock, we could have done it like we normally do warrants, which is, you know, you knock, you announce, you give five to 10 seconds and you make entry. And you still have a psychological advantage because if somebody's in bed or if they're not paying attention, all of a sudden somebody's in their house with a gun pointed at them yelling, police, people give up. Even the hardened criminals that go, I'm not going to prison. I'm going to fight. I'm going to shoot it out with the police. I've been on many of those warrants where you're, you know, your senses are up and you're, you're focused, you're laser focused in going, this guy said he's going to shoot me when I go in here, but I'm going in anyway. And those guys give up. So, and this wasn't a case of me being lax. It was just a case of trying to follow through with what we were asked to do. But looking back, had we just done what we always did, what I did on the 2000 previous warrants, I think things would have been good i had been shot at before and once, but, you know, every circumstance is different. I know Kenneth Walker didn't have the experience or the background to get that gun that quick out of a nightstand, get dressed, get in the hall and lay wait for us like he did. So I think things could have been real different had we done that.
0: Let me ask you this. One of the narratives that was out is that there were no drug inside of the apartment. And then I've heard something. Well, you guys, after everything happened, you guys didn't search the apartment. What, mm-hmm. What's the truth
1: about that? Okay, so when, when a police shooting happens, we have a, a unit called Public Integrity, and they come in, they take over scenes, and their goal—they write their own warrant once they get there, once they secure the apartment, and they come in looking for ballistics, for blood, for evidence based on that incident, based on the police shooting, and that's what they did that day. They put the rods through the windows, they uh, collected shell casings, they took pictures, but they didn't search like a narcotic search. Did they look places for where a bullet could be? Sure they did. I'm sure they opened a couple of drawers and looked, but they did not. We dump places, you know, we dump drawers, we flip beds, we go in attics, we go in basements, we go through every shoe box, every shoe, because the way these guys had narcotics is, I mean, I, no telling how much we've missed over the years because they're just good at it. It's, that's their full-time job. And, um, the, you know, those slit little holes and mattresses and shove stuff in it. There's been a ton of really cool places we found though. When 7:30 that morning is when public integrity cleared the scene the the detectives from the unit that we were assisting that night um, called our major and said, hey uh, can we go execute this warrant now whole purpose we're here you know John was shot let us go finish the job um, The word they got back from downtown or from wherever I'm not I'm not even perfectly sure who it was said no you're done case is over lock it up we're, we're finished here And so that's very frustrating because we know after the fact on jail phone calls that they retrieved money from the apartment. Two different people retrieved money from the apartment that she was holding for them. And no telling what else, because I'll look through the pictures, the crime scene photos, and you can see a attic that had a a little a hatch in it, and it had been moved to the side. Well, I don't think our uh, public integrity in their suits climbed up in that attic, to be honest with you. Kenneth Walker when this happened, stayed in the apartment for almost 16 minutes before he surrendered. Now, what did he do in that 16 minutes? He didn't have Brianna's blood all over him. He did put his gun that he shot with underneath a bed and said, after the shooting, he dropped it and kicked it accidentally under a bed and left it there the entire time. But at the same time, told 911 he thought he was getting home invaded, And that did not make any sense either. So um, all these things come into, in, come into play where you're like, how in the world can we have this many screw ups in one investigation? You know, there's always nothing goes as planned ever in in investigations or in operations. And one or two mistakes happens all the time, but man, these
0: things just kind of started compounding after the
1: fact. um, And it was very frustrating along the way.
0: Let me ask you this. And I don't know if you know, because obviously you've been shot, but the 16 minutes, I was unaware of that. So there were 16 minutes where he wouldn't come out and that was, 16 minutes where Brianna Taylor couldn't get care. Correct. Correct. So
1: what he said he did and, and what phone records showed, at least the phones that they took um, there are three phones they found in the house. They took, they downloaded two of them. They actually pulled the the cell data off two of them. I don't know why they didn't do the third one. The FBI still has it. Nobody knows. It's one, another one of the FBI mysteries. Um, but on the two phones, they showed the, the call logs and after the shooting, Kenneth Walker called his mom, talked to her for a couple minutes. Six minutes after the shooting, he called 911 and said, um, somebody just kicked in my door and killed my girlfriend. I don't know who it was. And this is after sirens had come. They were outside yelling for him to come out. And he's still telling them, I don't know who's here. Somebody just killed my girlfriend. I don't know who it was. He didn't say anything about him shooting. Um, And then after that call, he called Brianna's mom and talked to her. And at some point in that, there was a three-way between Brianna's mom and his mom. And we don't know what they talked about. Um, in my opinion, I think they were getting a story together, you know, say that, say that you didn't know it was a police, you heard somebody knocking, but you thought you were getting home invaded. Uh, and once they downloaded Kenneth Walker's phone, they found some incriminating evidence on there that where he had done previous home invasions. So there's no telling. He's so dope. I mean, there, there, he was just part of the game too. So there's no telling if, if in his past, because I don't know how it is where you were, but, uh, we had plenty of home invasions from from dope dealer and dope dealer where they would bang on the door, you know, police and some kid or some mom would open the door and they'd stick a gun in their face and go rob them. So I don't know if Kenneth thought that's what was happening here. I can't speak for him. I do know he's a liar because when he came out, uh, he's like, what's all this about? He's on, you know, fake crime. And they're like, well, you shot a cop. He said, no, she shot him. They went, wait a minute. Did you shoot her? Did she shoot? He said, she shot the police. So he was blaming her when he came out while she was dead in there on the floor. So this guy's a tool
0: from, you know, from the, from the jump. And, um, uh, I remember that. And I, that was something that changed the narrative changed, right? You know, he was blaming her for it. And then yeah. all of a sudden it came out because well, the ballistics came out, right? Or they, well, I saw him shoot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, exactly. Yeah. You saw him shoot. Sorry. Yeah, and,
1: and Well, not, not just that though, because obviously they didn't believe anything that the police said in this, we had seven guys with, um, uh, 150 years experience at the door, but they're believing This, this guy inside who sold dope and didn't have a job and uh, was accused of home invasions. They believed him, which it totally blows my mind. So, yeah. And another interesting fact that a lot of people don't know, it's in the book, but a lot of people don't know this, is that there was a courtesy officer that lived in those apartment complexes. And he happened to go to school with Kenneth Walker in high school and middle school. There were friends. He claimed him as a friend. He knew Kenneth Walker's mother. Well, because Kenneth called his mom, she showed up on scene. She was the first parent there. Well, this officer after here, the shooting came outside and was standing there. She saw him, approached him and said, hey, what's going on? And he was like, I don't know. I just came out here. And she said, well, Kenneth called me and said, mama, they're at the door. She said, I said, who, baby? And he said, it's the police. I got to go. I'll call you back and hung up. So we don't know if that happened on that other phone that was never downloaded or what, what events took place there. You know, was it, was there a miscommunication, what she told the officer on the scene as opposed to, cause we know she, he called her first before nine one one. So, but that alone is pretty damning. When you say in your statement and on national TV, that you didn't know it was the police at the door, but your own mom said you called her and told her the police were at the door. So uh, a lot of, a lot of things that, that just could have been put out to avoid a lot of this drama and a lot of the, 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 the stuff, all the fallout that happened after this, that they just didn't put out for some reason.
0: Well, I, I think we know the reason they're oh, afraid. Yeah. They're yeah. afraid. They're afraid to just speak the truth and tell people what they don't want to hear. And I've said it several times. The police are the last people in our society that tell people no and that tell people that they're wrong. I don't even think that the rest of the justice system does that anymore. Right. No, you know, uh, right. oh, you robbed that guy. Well, you're a really good kid. and you, you made a mistake instead of addressing the actual issue. I just it it all of this blows my mind. And here's another fun fact that you can probably enlighten everybody about. There's this narrative out there and we were kind of talking about it that, you know, all these people were interviewed and they said, oh, no, we didn't hear the police, hmm. which I don't know everything about that, but here's my two cents on that. I don't know. This might shock some people. People won't talk to the police. People won't tell the truth to the cops. I've made so many memes over the years about you go to a homicide and there's a hundred witnesses and all of a sudden nobody's seen anything. It happens all the time, all across the country, folks. And that's just kind of forgotten about. Oh, we have all these gun problems. We have all these issues. No, you have a bunch of assholes running around. You stand up for the assholes and you don't tell the cops what's actually happening in your community. There's right. no well, one to blame, but yourselves.
1: Right. Well, let me give you a little insight into that. There's a, a girl named Summer Dickerson who was used on a couple of these different, um, documentaries and she's a white girl. Um, she had some trouble in the past, but you know, she's, she's anti-police, you know, she marched, she did all the stuff. So she got on there and she was their big star witness and saying, I didn't hear the police. They never knocked. They never announced. Even though Kenneth Walker said we knocked, he claimed we didn't announce, but he said he heard us knock. And she's like, they didn't knock and announce and I would have heard it and all this. Well then several months later, you know, I'm kind of flipping through different people's Facebook who have made comments or who were big into this. And I look at one of her Facebook lives and she's on there and she had gotten into an argument with these other protesters because they always eat their own. And she's like, you know, all you people saying that I could have heard that I was two buildings away. There's no way I could have heard them knocking or announcing it. Even if they did, she said, cause I've had the police come in on me and I know how loud they are. She said, but there's no way I could have heard that. Cause I was two buildings away yet. Two buildings away was their main witness on all this stuff. So it's very misleading and, and again, like you said, the ones that were right there, do you think they're going to go against their own community and say, no, the police were right this time? They they did it. You know, they announced, no, for fear of their own life, why would they? And I understand that because, like I said, I grew up in that environment. I, I know the game. So it, it wasn't surprising, uh, like you said, because you go on homicide scenes where people may have even been hurt during a shooting and they go, I don't know, I didn't see nothing. A- Or you go to a hospital bed and you're interviewing the guy who's been shot, but he wasn't mortally wounded. He was conscious. He was face to face with this guy that he knows. And he goes, I didn't see nothing. I don't know who did it. You know, then you see a video of it later and you're like, dude, they know the guy, you know, they're friends or they used to be. So it's just amazing how that works out. But, but again, unless the general public has dealt with that, 80% of them are not going to know that exists in society. It's just a total different world to them.
0: Well, you know, the world famous story of Tupac, Right. Where, you know, he's dying and he tells the cop the fuck off. So yeah. no, no one knows, you know, who shot Tupac and people are like, oh, that's so cool. Why do yeah. we idolize that? I mean, the yeah. Super Bowl this year, we have a bunch of fucking gangsters up there. Why are we idolizing these fucking people? It it, it it amazes me. I just it's unfathomable. And then people complain about, like, oh, we have all these gun deaths and all the community is dying. Really? Well, You're surprised yeah, by this. Yeah, You get what you asked for. Yeah, the whole, you know, stupid games, stupid prizes thing. It's amazing. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your recovery because we talked about it briefly and you said, yeah, nobody from the department checked on me. No one really cared. That's incredible to me. Yeah,
1: it was incredible to me too. So um, I talked to my chief obviously came to to the hospital the night I got shot because, you know, they do that. Um, He came the next day to the hospital and he and I talked for about an hour in my room. And after that, March, that was actually March 13th because I got shot I got shot the early morning part of March 13th. So I talked to him before surgery at like two in the morning, and then he came in the, ne- the next day, which was still March 13th in the afternoon and I spoke with him. After that, I haven't spoken to him since we've had an interim chief, another interim chief, and now Chief Shields who came from Atlanta after that debacle. And you know, I reached out to, all three of them to try to talk to them. Two of them I requested meetings with. I requested two separate meetings at different times with chief shields and got turned down on all of them. And I'm going, what is, am I kryptonite? What? You know, I was shot in the line of duty here doing what you asked me to do and you won't even give me the courtesy to talk to me. And I know that came straight from the mayor's office because he's one of the, he's a super progressive liberal. And a lot of people don't know this, but when Obama was in office and they started this 21st policing agenda, Louisville was the flagship department for that. We are we were the front runners, we were the face of it. Um, our our leadership went to D.C., did all this training, got to meet all the big wigs, um, and they pushed all this 21st century hug a thug policing. Well, our mayor is totally on board with the progressive AOC type stuff. I mean, he's nuts, and. So when this first came out, he he was on board with Breonna Taylor. We need justice for Breonna Taylor, justice for Breonna Taylor. Well, when the facts started coming out, he stuck to that gun and he refused to get off of it. I mean, he was going to die on that hill. Uh, but unfortunately, there's just no ramifications for these guys. Even when the truth comes out, they're not held accountable. They're not. You know, we have uh, ours is called professional standards unit, but you have IAs and departments that look over police, and we get hammered, like you said earlier, for everything but there is no accountability for our judges and mayors. They, 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 they go with autonomy. They can do whatever they want and there's no pushback on that. And and that blows my mind too. Just like the thing you talked about earlier, it blows my mind that there's no accountability for these people who make all these decisions.
0: Yeah. It it falls back completely on the police real quick before we jump around a little bit, but I'll ask since somebody else did, how is your recovery going?
1: It's, It's not bad. Um, you know, I was blessed. I've still got my legs still numb from like the thigh to the ankle on the front side, not the back side, just the front side. Uh, the knee stays stiff and, and it almost, the only way I can describe it, it feels like it's going to, um, uh, what do they call it when it goes backwards? Hyper.
0: Oh, whatever. hyperextend.
1: Yeah. It feels like yeah. it's going to hyperextend sometime. And I'm like, Ugh, you know, and I tighten my, tighten the muscles up around it, make sure it doesn't. Um, but other than that, you know, I've got the scars and stuff. Uh, I'm pretty fortunate. I've lost a little bit of strength in that leg, but for, for what I went through, it was uh for the graze wound I suffered. It was, I've, I've been fortunate.
0: And I, th- this actually came up in my last podcast, but it, it's unfortunate. There's people out there that don't have tourniquets get a oh, fucking tourniquet. Yes. I, I wouldn't be here. I'm
1: telling you it was bleeding that profusely. I mean, I was in a puddle of my own blood that it was like laying in a bathtub and and I can't remember how many liters they told me I lost. They told me it's in my file, but I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But man, I was I was grave by the time I got to the hospital, and that was even after having tourniquet on. So there's no way I would have made it because we were a good 20 minutes from our from the hospital, and uh, that's a long time to be bleeding from an artery.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely, man. You are blessed. I mean, you you are very lucky. I Kenneth Walker, he never he got charged, but they ultimately dismissed the charges, right?
1: Correct. Yeah, so they said, um, I at least got a courtesy call the first time they dismissed the charges, like 20 minutes before they announced it. One of the assistant district attorneys called me and said, man, I hate to tell you this, but um, we're dismissing these charges because they brought up some questions about the way the grand jury was presented. Um, And so what we're going to do is we're going to dismiss them, but without prejudice, and that way we can come back later. We're going to build this case on him. We're going to go after him. We're going to do all this. We're going to get to this phone. Uh, we're going to go after the charges that are in his phone of the selling drugs and the robberies and all this stuff. Well, none of that happened. And one day I'm out and I get a text from somebody says, man, why did they drop permanently drop the charges on Kenneth Walker? So they dismissed him with prejudice, which means they, can, they can't they can bring the charges back up. And I went, what are you talking about? And they said, well, check check the news. So I looked on social media and sure enough, you know, no courtesy call, no anything. It was just done. Those days are over. And I can, you know, part of me understands why they probably couldn't have won that in court, especially in our city. Um, Cause like I said, we're a super liberal city and, and the police aren't the most favorite thing here, but you know, you were willing to take a cop and drag him through the mud for defending me. And he had to go through trial and, the whole city was screaming, why aren't these cops on trial for murder? But then they applauded that his charges got dropped. So I could I could almost see how they couldn't get 12 people to go, okay, well, he knew for sure it was the police at the door because it's, it's just an impossible thing to prove um, unless they dug deeper into his mother's phone call, unless they interviewed her, which they didn't. So there were a lot of mistakes that took place in my opinion on purpose by the district attorney, because they didn't want to know the full truth because then they would have to bring these charges and they didn't want that heat. I mean, instantly they they recused themselves from my case and and gave it to the attorney general because they didn't, you know, it's past the trash. I don't want to be left holding the ball when when it's proven that these cops didn't do anything wrong. And uh, that's kind of the, the way it was on, on Kenneth Walker as well. Hey, let's just close this out. Hope it goes away. Hope it pleases uh, this part of society that's screaming the loudest and uh, we'll go from there.
0: Do you have any doubt in your mind that Kenneth Walker knew you guys were the police?
1: No, no. You're talking about apartment walls that aren't real real thick. Um, The way we were yelling, the way I was yelling, there's impossible. When you have an upstairs apartment that you're not at, come out wondering what you're doing, then that's pretty telling to me that he knew. Um, I can't explain why he did what he did because I remember when I woke up in the hospital, I looked at my wife and was like, first I said, was anybody else hurt? Because I, I wasn't sure inside the apartment what happened. And she was like, yeah, a female died. And I was like, oh, crap. Because you know as well as I do, the biggest fear for a cop is that you're going to shoot the wrong person. Or you're going to take somebody's life that didn't deserve it. And not on purpose, but on accident. And that's what happened in this situation. Well, I, I don't know if she ever had a gun because my, fil- my field of vision never got totally to her. But I do know Kenneth Walker had a gun. And I know we were trying to fire back at him and she followed him into the room. So I know it was unavoidable, but at the same time, it doesn't make it easier to accept. And so when 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 she told me that, I said, man, I wish I could, I wish Kenneth Walker were here. I said, I want to ask him a couple of questions. Number one, if you thought we were home invading you, why did you not leave Brianna in the bedroom, calling 911 while you came out to address us, if that's really what you thought? And second off, why were you so close to her in the hallway? Why would you leave her hanging? That doesn't make any sense to me. If you're her protector and you love her so much and, and all these things, you put her in a situation that was unwinnable. And as a man, as somebody who who is chivalrous and who claims to be, you know, somebody who protects
0: women, I can't understand that. So that blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, if, if it was an actual home invasion and he should know is, well, I got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If it was an actual home invasion, you're putting somebody defenseless out there. Why would you? It, you're right. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to me why you're right. I, I have really got nothing more to say that it, it makes no sense why she was out in the hallway. And it's one of those things that it'll never be answered. He's not going to tell the truth.
1: Well, nobody's going to ask him either unless it's in court, because all these interviews he's done with Gail King with uh, Good Morning America and all them. Oh baby, poor baby. You know it's very coddling, and I can't believe the police did this to you and how traumatizing. And 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 then when I talked to Straighthand, it was like I was being cross-examined for three hours because he and I talked for three hours straight, no break, no anything. And they they took the couple minutes that he and I kind of got heated with each other and put it in there, and that was all you heard. And I'm going, oh well, lesson learned: never give a pre pre-recorded uh, interview with uh, liberal media. But you know, it's things you just don't know going into it.
0: Well, and be honest with you, I think, you know, you never know who's going to listen to this. That might actually be some life, well, not life-saving information, but some great information for somebody to hear down the road because right, right, anybody could chop that up. I mean, like I could, I could chop, not that oh, I would, yeah. but I could chop this up and make it sound awful. And that's goes back to the news media. There, people hold the news media in this high esteem. It's a money-making business. It's a business. If it's not clickbait, if people it's not sensational, no one cares. Right. And I wish I wish we could just get to that. Everybody says it, but it's why do we keep reading this stuff? But we do. We keep yeah. consuming this. And they, they put out the same regurgitated garbage 24-7. Yeah, there is no critical thinking in America anymore.
1: It's exactly what you said. I'm gonna hear it, I'm gonna regurgitate it. I'm not gonna investigate and see if it's accurate. I'm not gonna take common sense and go, wait a minute, something's not adding up here. But if, if the person I follow says it, man, it's golden. I'm just going to retweet it. I'm going to add my little comment to it. I'm going to put it out and and hope see how many clicks I can get from it.
0: So what are you up to now?
1: Well, I've been doing a lot of speaking, uh, traveling around, talking to different organizations, uh, wrote the book. Um, what my future, future plans are, I don't know. We'll play it by ear. Uh, my main goal, though, is just to help people. I want to be a resource for other officers who are being left on an Island by themselves, because that was the worst part about all this. It wasn't, it wasn't the physical recovery. It wasn't any of that. I can even deal with the lies in the media, but it was the, the feeling like you're on an Island by yourself, not knowing how to navigate through this because I'm not the first person to go through this. I won't be the last, but there's no playbook out there for this. There's nobody to reach out to, to go, man, what do I do next? You know, you, you, you were recreating this wheel every single time. So I want to be a source where people can reach out to me and go, Hey, what do I do here? And probably 80% of the time, I'm going to go, you know what? I don't really know, but I know somebody who does. Let me put you in touch with them and just kind of be a conduit for um, where these guys can, can reach out to and get the information they need, get the help they need. Because, you know, I was fortunate where at least our city uh, paid the, the medical bills or workman's comp did. um, But they also, paid the civil litigation bills and I was surprised. So there's an organization I've, I've gotten tied into. It's called Wounded Blue. Uh, it's ran by Randy Sutton. He's a, a retired Lieutenant from Las Vegas police. Great dude. And he kind of got screwed over by his department at the end of his career. So he started this organization that helps guys who are and, and ladies who have been screwed by their department in their cities. And I went to their conference last year. It was their first one because it's a fairly new organization. And I didn't know Randy at the time. Uh, but I knew one of the people that knew him. So I went out there just to see what it was about. And I sat there and listened to some of the stories of the people he's already helped. And I thought, man, I had it good. There's this one guy, he was a Lieutenant on a small department. Um, they were in a, in a chase a robbery suspect. And the guy shot an AR out of his window, came through the cop's car, hit him in the head. The AR did two, two, three around right in the head. He went off the road, flipped his vehicle, messed him up. Poor guy. He's not 100% now. You know, I talked to him, great guy, but you can tell he's had a head injury. And, um, but his department, they had issues with workman's comp that wouldn't pay his bills. The department said, That's not our problem. It's workman comp problem. If they're not paying your salary, we're not. He lost his house. He went bankrupt. And the department let him go because physically he couldn't come back to work in full duty. And so this guy was just totally screwed. And this was one of, four or five stories I heard like that, that week. And I'm going, my goodness, as bad as I had it, I didn't have it that bad. And I'm thinking how many more people are out there like this? If these are just the surface people that I'm seeing, how many guys are there? And I've already been, I've had several guys reach out to me just from hearing podcasts going, I need help. And it's just amazing how easily these cities and these departments turn their
0: backs on, on good cops. And it's, it's convenient to do so. and there's no one holding the city accountable there's no marches there's no protest there's no one i mean i gotta be honest i'm sick to my stomach to hear about this guy that was in a pursuit and got shot Mm -hmm. and no one thought it would be the right thing to take care of him again we we go back to this stupid liability thing and everything's about liability and you know you're a man of faith no one no one does anything for the common good nobody does the right thing because it's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah. It's not that hard doing the right things. Not that hard. It's not always the most convenient thing or easiest thing, but at the end of the day, it makes the rest of your life so much easier. And I I don't understand there's, there's something bigger at play here than, than we know, or we can see, because logically you look around the country at all the events taking place from uh, you name it, <laughs> all, all the craziness that's going on, everything's backwards. And you're like, what's the end game here? You know, what is the goal of these crazy people in DC and all these other places that are pushing these agendas? What What do they think the outcome's going to be? Because logic tells you, you know, if you do one plus one equals two, but they're not doing that. And so I, I don't know the answer to it all. I just know that there's something bigger at play here that that we ha- our eyes haven't been open to yet.
0: Well, it, I don't want to go, you know, you used to work nights, you know, about coast to coast, right? Yeah. Uh, every every I, I've been meaning to do a coast to coast episode. I think it'd be funny, but <laughs> uh, I don't want to go coast to coast and, you know, these weird conspiracies, but shit, are we at the end times? I mean, is this, Man. is this how everything is falling? Is just everybody, uh, is this the plague? Is this our version of the plague? I, are frogs falling from the sky? I don't know. It just, nothing makes sense anymore.
1: Yeah. Like most, like most preachers, kids that grow up, you get tired of hearing that stuff growing up because it's 24 seven in your house. And so sometime you get turned off to it, you know, and you get away from church or get away from God or whatever. And you think, man, that's, I, I think it's real, but again, some of the stuff kind of sounds a little, little far-fetched, crazy, like in revelation. But now as all this stuff has come to fruition. You look at it and go, my goodness, you can go through and like check the box of the things you're seeing uh, play out. And, You know, I'm thinking, man, my dad was a lot wiser than I gave him credit for growing up.
0: Well, I think a lot of us are like that, uh, myself included. Well, and then the other side of it, and I don't know if it's the more realistic side, but it was this came up on a prior podcast, too, is these politicians, they're not they're not thinking ahead. They're not forward thinking. They're just thinking at the moment. So there is there's no plan this is just what we do now. There's no one's actually looking ahead to what things are going to look like in five, 10 years. And this is a terrible analogy, but this is a terrible podcast. So I'm going with it. Are you a star Wars fan? No, not at all. Okay. Well, sorry. I apologize. But so they, they made the, the new star Wars movies and they made the first one and it was not bad, but no one, no one knew what they were going to do with the next two movies. And so basically the next two movies was trying to figure out what they were supposed to do from the first one. So and, shooting from the hip shooting from the hip. And I think, Either it's the end times or it's no one's thinking these things out. No one's thinking, okay, we're doing this right now. What does this mean in five or 10 years? You know, the whole defund thing, right? That was the big thing after George Floyd. Okay. Now that happened. Now cities have lost hundreds of cops, including people like me, that I fucking love the job. And here I am. I, I left the city. I left the commies. I didn't want to be anywhere near it. You lost those type of people. You're not. You're not losing the bad cop. You're not losing. Those guys stayed. I hate to tell you. They do. And now you have to lower hiring standards because people are smart enough to say, yeah, I really want to go help people. I'm going to find a different way to do it because this is ridiculous.
1: Yeah. And and I've been preaching this on other podcasts. I don't know if you've heard any of it. And I don't know if you were old enough to remember this, but back in the eighties, late seventies and eighties, man, New Orleans and Detroit, the reputation of their cops were so corrupt and crooked. Because they're they're hiring, they chased off all the good ones and their their hiring standards are so low. And we're getting back to that nationwide. So while earlier in the podcast, I said, I think we're the most professional we've ever been. I think we're also on a road where we could be very corrupt again. And I think it's a scary place to be in because we are chasing off all the good cops, all the cops who took this job for the right reasons and who enjoyed helping other people and who did things because they were right, not because they were fun. and And we're going down that road that, like you said, there's no forethought. It's live for today. I'm going to be satisfied right now and screw whatever comes tomorrow. And that's the problem with our police chiefs. Those guys are nothing but politicians now. They answer to mayors who are politicians. They don't care about being a cop. They don't care about the citizens. They don't care about the rank and file below them. They care about what their next job is going to be. Where are they going to land after this one? What kind of paycheck am I going to get? What kind of pension am I going to get? And and that's a sad place to be in.
0: Man, you are you're preaching to the choir here because that's I'm sure this happens in small towns too, but I looked at it the same exact way. These people that are in positions of power within the police department, I'd say one out of five are actually still a cop in their heart. Yeah. Four out of five. The, I'm just gonna say it is, and and you know it's true. A lot of these folks that promote, they were never cops, they were never oh. good cops. They got off the road as quick as possible. They got into non-enforcement assignments. They got into whatever they could to avoid doing police work. And then when it was time to like, okay, I've been here a little bit. It's time to promote. That's what they did. They just promote. And, you know, people will cry and say, oh, you're just mad because, you know, you couldn't pass the test. A lot of guys that can't pass the test are too busy answering calls and not sitting at some desk job studying the whole time. Okay. Right. It's it's a reality. And and I don't, if somebody, I feel free, anybody wants to come on and take me on with that. I know I'm right. Four out of five people are terrible leaders.
1: Yeah. And taking a test does not prove that you're qualified to be a leader. There's plenty of guys that can pass tests who have zero common sense. They're book smart, but they're what Dan Bongino calls smart, stupid people. And that's unfortunately what we have at the top of our ranks, all these people who, they knew which uh, classes to go to. They have their little certificates and degrees and all these cool sounding uh, names from these police organizations, but they couldn't, they couldn't tell you how to conduct an investigation. They can't look at somebody and go, hey, what's wrong with that guy? I don't know. Well, did you see what he did here? Did you see the way he turned away from us? Did you see, you know, they, they don't know how to read body language. They don't, they don't know how when they're talking to somebody to decipher a lie. And it's pathetic that those are the guys at the top that are in charge that are leading our troops.
0: This is a little off the wall, but it was uh, Louisville. Did I say it? Did I almost get it that time? You did. You got oh, it. I'm so proud of myself. Did you guys do the whole Kalia thing? Yes. I find it hilarious that in my department did too, which hopefully doesn't give away too much, but I think a lot of places do. Kalia was such a big thing. Such a huge thing. Every once a year, you got the panicked emails like, Hey, make sure we're doing this and that mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. Got to get our money. Where's Kalia now? All these departments that have been involved in all these critical incidents and, you know, these police departments were up to standards and now all these police departments are being investigated because they weren't up to standards and they were doing things incorrectly. And again, just because there's an acronym behind it doesn't mean it's worth a shit. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. there's my, my big fu to Khalil, very <laughs> worthless organization.
1: Well, those organizations are nothing but moneymakers as well. I mean, call a spade a spade. There's very few people who get into many of these industries are these organizations that that are doing it for the right reasons. Most of them are doing it, or maybe they started with their good intentions, but money corrupts everything. And, and once they get in it and get a little taste of it, then how can we push this out to everybody and make it sound like everybody needs this in order to be,
0: you know, above standard. And that's just not the case. Well, I, as we kind of come to the conclusion of uh, this podcast i i have some dumb questions i like to ask people so are you ready All for right, them right. let's do it i think you've been through enough so i'm not going to ask you if you pooped your pants and i don't I know why not. i did not well not during that oh but, well i, I have poop I, i've got a good poop pants story if you want to hear it you know what i would love nothing more because I, I i didn't want to <laughs> ask you it because i I've, i felt like you've been through enough but if you're offering oh, it i don't up, care let's hear it yeah i don't get embarrassed easy
1: so uh we're getting ready to do the search warrant. This was probably 2000, man, it was a couple of years before this event. I was in narcotics. So probably 17, 18, it's middle of winter, super, I mean, like below freezing out, like 10 degrees.
0: Does it really we're get that this, cold out there?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's It's cold in the winter.
0: Okay.
1: Hot and muggy in the summer, cold in the winter. And so we're in this church parking lot waiting for the go on this warrant. And it's almost time. Like we're like two minutes out. And the guy I'm with, I'm like, my gosh, I got to pee so bad. I can't hold it. So I jump out. I've got my gear on. I go on, zip my pants. I go behind, beside this dumpster in this church parking lot and I'm peeing. Well, it's cold out and we're in a hurry because we're getting ready to mount up and roll. So I'm pushing, pushing, pushing as hard as I can. And it feels like I got to pass gas. And so I pass it while I'm peeing and it was wet. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You know, <laughs> we are getting ready to make entry on this house. I'm geared up. And then I've got, I got mush butt so i was like hey give me a knife he gave me a knife i just cut my underwear off wiped my butt with it, pulled it out through the dumpster and, and free freeballed it on the warrant but yeah we've all got those stories
0: see uh you know i'm doing really important things in humanizing people shitting their pants so here we are <laughs> let me ask your opinion in your opinion over the last 20 years what is the best patrol car
1: um well I'm probably just biased. It was the first one I had. It was like a 96 or 97 uh, Crown Vic. It was hell the, yeah. Before the square body styles, it was after the, the really square one, and then it was the next one. Um, but it was before that they, they got bigger. So I guess it was like two generations ago. But yeah, probably 96. They were fast, they were just fast.
0: That's the, that's the oldest crown Vic that I think anybody's referenced on here. Cause I, I would, and I don't know if you guys had them. I, I really like the caprices that were in the mid nineties.
1: No, we've always had only Fords because uh, Ford is here in Louisville. And so we have a contract with them and our mayor didn't want to tick Ford off. Uh, I mean, it was pulling teeth on our unmarked cars to get anything other than a Ford. Cause for a while, the mayor wouldn't allow it. And we were like, dude, we can't, you know, we're riding around in 20 explorers and, and edges and everything's Ford they know where the police were coming, which they, they know most time anyway, but we finally got out of that. And the only way we can get around that though, is by doing leases, which is another ripoff. But anyway, but yeah, Crown Vic, uh, the the 96 Crown Vic was the best.
0: If you weren't a cop, what do you think you would have ended up doing?
1: Man, I don't know from, from, from a kid on, I wanted to do three things. Well, it was four, but only three were practical. I wanted to be either in the military police or fire. Um, I know police and fire. That's a, contradictory statement
0: there, but ah, same team, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: and I want to be a cowboy, but you know, I was about a hundred years too late on that one. So it was honest. Um, There's
0: still cowboys, man. Yeah, you not in Kentucky. Still live your dream.
1: I know we've got horses here, but we don't have cowboys here. Uh, we've got rich, rich people that have horses, but yeah, it was, uh, it was military or police or fire all the way. It was always something to that extent. I like adrenaline. I like, I don't want to sit behind a desk. I want to be moving you know, the ADD kicks in and and I'm all over the place. So that's, that was
0: it for me. Do you have any imparting wisdom that you'd like to bestow? That's a big word for me on all the people that are listening to the podcast, anything you'd like to share? Are you talking about anything? Cops or lizards? It could be cop. It could be life. It could be, you know, what stock to buy, whatever you want to tell the world. (laughs) I don't know enough about stocks. I never have money, but the, the thing I would
1: say is find out what your values are and do not stray from them because once you go through an event like this, you've got to stick to your guns on things. And if you have values, you're not going to screw other people over and people can depend on you because that is huge because in this day and age, there's so many people that are just looking out for themselves. So part of that is just being kind of a a good person, but it's got to be value-based and it's got to be, with the heart of, of thinking about other people, because when you do that and you take care of those around you in turn, you get taken care of and those people turn around and look out for you. And so I think that's an important way to live life, not about yourself, but about others. And
0: you always get rewarded back. I wish more people live their life like that and not to drag this on, but I, I just, this whole me society, which I meant to talk about with the politicians is it's not about, you know, or what our children are going to have to deal with in five or 10 years. It's about what's good for me at this moment. And mm-hmm. it, honestly, like it's poetic how you put it. Cause I'm not articulate. You are way more articulate than me. That's why you passed the Sergeant test and I probably never <laughs> could, but yeah, go, go be a good person. It's, it's pretty simple. So
1: it's real simple. Yeah.
0: Well, Hey John, I, uh, I appreciate all your time this evening, man. I, I, I feel for you, man. It, your case was, you know, I looked at that. I looked at, you know, a lot of stuff that happened around the country and that what happened to you guys was kind of one of those things I looked at is why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself in this situation? And I I hope that, you know, people hear this and it's kind of, it's enlightening to, this is, this can happen to you. This isn't something that's a a foreign thing. Like this happens to guys all over the country all the time.
1: Right. And again, don't feel for me. Just take my story, put it in the back of your head and then be willing to help the officers out there that you see that are still standing in the gap, willing to, to put their self out there and uh, get the book. Read it. There's a ton of stuff in there that, that could be useful, that could be helpful. 12 Seconds in the Dark. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can get it in-store at Barnes & Noble or Books a Million. And uh, I don't think you'll be dis- disappointed. It's a super easy read. It was written by a cop, and it was written for the everyday person. Not real long, and
0: I think you'll enjoy it. Are there pictures? Because if there's not pictures, I don't know if I can. There remember. are pictures. They're not scratch and sniff. I hate to tell you, but oh, man, but there are pictures.
1: They're not to my quality I would like. They're supposed to be colored, but I guess uh, I'm not the publisher, and I guess they had to cut corners where they could. They're black and white, but there's there's some good pictures in there. Some good uh, text messages and stuff that you'll see from people who are backstabbers and and yeah, if you're in law enforcement, buddy, I you know we're supposed to wear our, our cameras, and I wish we had had them that night. We weren't assigned them, but or most of us. But if you're dealing with people in your command, I don't know what the laws are in your state. Do whatever you do. But I would record conversations. I would cover your back. For all you young cops out there, cover your own back because other people ain't going to have your sex. God,
0: that's so so hard to hear. Can I ask you something else about the book? Because I'm curious. Yeah. Did you have a hard time finding somebody to publish it based on everything that was going on?
1: Well, I've had a hard time with a lot of things because of who I am now. Um, The book being one of them, uh, I was fortunate with the very first publisher I sent some stuff to. I, I sat down and I was like, you know, I'm, I don't even like reading. So let's get that out there. Um, and I don't like schoolwork. I didn't like paperwork at work. But on this, it was just telling my story. So it made it a lot easier. Uh, it was kind of cathartic at the same time. But yeah, so I had Post Hill Press. I reached out to them. I sent them this big um, proposal and they accepted it. And I was shocked. It was the first person I reached out to, but they are a more conservative, smaller publishing house out of Nashville and things were going well. And I'd submitted the transcript by April of 2021 and it was supposed to be out September of 21. And um, what happened was the cover photo I wanted to use, I had to get, I had to pay for it, get a copyright through Gannett because it was a USA Today uh, photo, great photo. One of our cops in Louisville, uh, right in the middle of this, the protests with lights behind him and smoke and really neat photo. And it would have been great for that guy. He was excited about it. Um, But what happened when I submitted that you have to, for the copyright to say who you are, what you're doing it for, the name of your book and how, how many copies you expect to sell. And that's required or they can revoke it. And then you would have to pay them, you know, they could sue you in court. So I did all that, put it through and, our local papers, the Courier Journal, they are also their parent company is Gannett, which is USA's Today's parent company. Somebody from Gannett reached out to Courier Journal and said, "Hey, do you know that cop that killed Brianna Taylor is going to write a book?" And we were trying to keep it off the radar because we knew there would be issues. And they were like, "Oh no! Well, let's write a story about it." So they blasted it out, and it went nationwide, and it blew up, and um, the the publishing company started getting threats. Uh, their employees are all young females. They were getting, they got doxxed. They were, they had to have security hired at their, at their place. Uh, they were threatened to get their place burned down. Um, Simon and Schuster was the distributor. So they're the publishing house, the distributor, Simon and Schuster, they're the ones that handle the printing, the, the putting it out to Amazon and all that. Well, Simon and Schuster got heat and they were like, Nope, we're not touching it. We're not doing the book now. So that was a blow. And I'm sitting back going, my goodness, can anything go right? So I started just firing out emails to different people and, um, I talked to Daily Wire. They were interested, but then I didn't hear anything back from them. And I'm like, that's weird. I thought, you know, I thought potentially, cause they, they didn't have a book company at this point, but they had already started with their films and, and their different parallel economy. So I thought, well, man, this, this could be a good thing for you all. Let me, let me, why don't you take this manuscript and run with this book? And they said, well, we, we'll think about it. Well, then I didn't hear anything back, so I thought they weren't interested. I thought, well, this is going to be, you know, it was a waste of time writing this thing. And um, so then I talked to Post Hill, and, and they were willing to take me out of the contract because they couldn't they couldn't put it out. They had no way to put it out. And about that time, the Post Hill guy called me back and said, hey, Daily Wire reached out, and they want the book. And I was like, really? Okay, well, that's cool. And uh, he was like, yeah, but Dan Bongino wants it too. And I said, eh, "I like Dan Bongino, but does he really have the infrastructure to put this thing out if Amazon shuts it down and won't, you know, won't let it be sold online?" I knew Daily Wire had a, a several different outlets that they could push it, so I went with them. And um, fortunately enough, they were just starting this DW Books, and I was their first book they they published, and and it just took off from there. So it's like anything else in life when you think. Things aren't going the way you want them to. God just opens another door and it's even better. And I think this was a better opportunity in the end than, than the first one that didn't really have the power to push it out like Daily Wire did.
0: What's the reception of the book been? It's been great. Um,
1: I'll tell you the weird thing. Um, they've reached out, Daily Wire's reached out to a bunch of you know conservative channels, uh, people with podcasts, the big names and all that. And most people aren't receptive of it in that area. I don't know if they don't want the heat of, of this, or I don't know if it's gotten stale to them. I don't know what it is, but, uh, but the people that have gotten it and it's so quite a few copies. I mean, it was the, it's been in the bestseller for four weeks and, um, and everybody has just raved over it. And it's not because of me, because like I said, this is probably written on a you know 10th grade level. I don't know, but it's, uh, it's gotten great reviews and people, I think people are hungry for the truth. I think 80% of our society just wants to be told the truth and quit getting lied to. And, um, and the truth's in it. And so if people want the truth, get it. If not, don't, you know, it's no skin off my back.
0: Uh, uh, it's the, all of it's just amazing to me. All of it is just amazing. Start to finish everything that, that you've kind of gone through, but it, I'm glad ultimately, you know, daily wire picked it up. And it, the heat thing's interesting because somebody reached out to me and said, Hey, I should reach out to you and see if you'd come on the podcast. And, you know, I was like, oh man, this could draw some negative attention. And I had that thought for like a half a second. I was like, I don't, I don't give a shit. The truth needs to be told. I I don't care if you want to, you know, nobody wants the negative attention, but again, going back, it's doing the right thing.
1: Right. And I think that goes back to money because the the bigger you are, the more sponsors you have, the more sponsors you have, the more, the less say you have in what you do. And I think that's been the case with most of these. Um, You would hope that wasn't it because before the book, when there was all this, this salacious stuff going around before the truth was out, I probably had three or 400 requests from all these major media that won't touch me now. And it's just funny how that works when it's not, when it's not in their favor or, or something that that's in it for them. Um, then, then suddenly they don't care about the truth.
0: Yeah. It's amazing how that works. Well, Hey man, I, Thanks again for all the time this evening. I, I really appreciate it. It's really been enlightening. And, and honestly, I mean, you're, you know, you're one of the good guys. You're fighting a good fight on, you know, unfortunately this thing happened and it, it, it is sad because somebody lost their life, but ultimately, you know, you guys weren't out, you know, shooting her in her sleep and all this crazy shit that everybody hears. It, it was tragic, but I mean, ultimately there's one person culpable in all of this. And I think after listening to podcasts, you know who it is, but this guy walks free. Yep.
1: Yep. Unfortunately, it's the way it is.
0: Everybody out there, thanks again for listening. Go buy his book, read it, support him, know the full truth. Because obviously we can't cover that in an hour and a half. And of course, if you want to help me out and keep this podcast going so I don't get canceled and I don't have to get a real job, do all the things you guys are awesome about doing. Click the link at the end, steal your mom's credit card and uh, donate a little bit of money to me every month. It helps out quite a bit buy some t-shirts. I think the coins will probably be sold out by now, but maybe they'll still be around. And of course, take care of the fine sponsors of the podcast, because without them, I got to have a real job. With that said, remember the brass will not support you. The news media is full of shit and I love most of you. Bye-bye.